Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the March 14, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, Shahir Masri, whose research deals with air pollution exposure assessment and epidemiology at UCI, will reflect on his work and what it's like to be a scientist in 2017. Hint, it's not your father's or your grandmother's or your mother's or not even your Environmental Protection Agency. We'll explore all the latest breaking pronouncements and utterances about carbon, extreme weather, science literacy, and anything else that keeps my guest up at night. Prepare for more marching orders on Ask a Leader. Then we'll be welcoming back UCI Claire Trevor School of the Arts Director, Professor Jane Page, with projects happening this very week. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My guest today is Dr. Shahir Mazri, specializing in air pollution exposure assessment and epidemiology at UCI's words researching. He completed his Bachelor of Science degree in environmental science from UCLA, his master's in environmental health from Harvard, the Chan School of Public Health, and his doctor of science degree also in exposure epidemiology risk program at the Harvard School of Public Health. His work focuses on exposure assessment relating to particulate matter and other ambient air pollutants. And that offends all of us in terms of how it affects us. He's, most recently, he applied positive matrix factorization modeling techniques to characterize the composition and source contributions to coarse and fine particulate matter in Boston, Massachusetts. Additionally, he developed and applied a novel satellite-based air pollution exposure model to estimate air pollution exposure among U.S. military personnel deployed to Southwest Asia and Afghanistan. He's, his information, his research is going to be very helpful in looking at where we're going with where the funding needs to continue for our understanding of where the intersection of science and public health come together. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Shahir Mazri. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Well, let's start with your work, your formative history with science. How? Let's talk about how you got started, why you chose the tack you took as an undergraduate. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I started out pursuing environmental science uh, largely because I grew up uh, as a very outdoors person appreciating uh, the environment and uh, just understanding, I guess, the importance of its preservation. Um, it's not coincidental, I suppose, that my mom is an environmental science teacher. Okay. And uh, yeah, I, I've always just had a passion for science. I've had a passion for the outdoors. And Ultimately, I discovered there was a, a major that you could do called environmental science where you could really overlap science with uh, environmental preservation, and that's sort of how my path got going. So has there been a public health kind of component to the environmental science that you've been working on, or that, that sort of moved in once you were a graduate student? Uh, no, so during my in, uh, undergraduate at UCLA, uh, I was um, told to choose a concentration, and uh, I've always found chemistry interesting, and uh, environmental pollution was an area where I could pursue chemistry and uh, 
the environmental, um, you know, the environmental objectives that I had already. And uh, that's when I chose to uh, pursue environmental health. So I took some graduate courses at UCLA, and that really spurred me on into uh, the master's program at Harvard. I applied because I was interested in uh, continuing down this path of environmental health and understanding how pollutants and pollution affect the environment and human health. So that was 2009 when you finished, and you went into your graduate work after that. It was a different climate in that stretch, so to speak. Uh, so then from where you are now, then you had the geek in chief, as they used to call President Obama. He used a lot of things in chief. It's different now. What are you currently working on? What are you funded to do? Uh, yeah, so I mean, there's no doubt it's a different climate, uh, no pun intended, than than it was uh, oh, now. Puns, than it, puns intended. <laughs> pun intended. Than it was back then. Um, uh, I mean, during the time that I was, you know, through graduate school and, and part of my undergraduate, I mean, we had o- Obama, which was not only uh, supportive of science through his speech, but he also appointed the most scientifically educated uh, series of environmental uh, EPA administrators from Linda Jackson with a chemical engineering degree to uh, Gina McCarthy with an environmental health science master's degree uh, from Tufts. So definitely a different time back then. Um, What I'm currently working on at UCI is developing models that help us estimate uh, air pollution exposure of a certain type of pollutant, toxic pollutants called uh, what are known as polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, also called PAHs for short. Uh, and we're really trying to come up with exposure maps that allow scientists uh, an additional tool to understand the relationship between exposure and disease. Which is really quite a fundamental yeah, thread yeah, here. It is indeed. So the lack of scientists among the Trump appointments, according to the Washington Post, it's only... One of 46 positions have been filled. So that's putting NASA and NOAA and the National Academy of Scientists. It's signaling, it's putting them at a, an understaffed situation. Uh, we've seen websites that are getting scrubbed. So there's, a, and there's a, a, was a race to get all the previous websites archived so that data was somewhere, not scrubbed for good. But this is signaling that science is not a concern or if not, it's not a priority. What effect, Shahir, does this have on how you go about your work? I would say the biggest effect this has had on my work is really the addition of an activist component to what I do. So um, I will be pursuing science uh, as as um, I would have previously. Granted, there's some issues of funding, which I'll get to in a second. But Okay. Um, the really the addition of, of an activist component. So I've previously been active in trying in uh, obviously science and but also trying to communicate that science to the public. And I do that through blogging and writing for different um, media outlets. But uh, I've recently become more vocally active uh, on issues specifically related to climate change. Uh, for instance, at a rally in front of Mimi Walter's office not too long ago, I spoke about climate change. And since then, I've been invited to do uh, two more speeches, uh, talks about climate change. So really, this uh, this new, more vocally um, active front is something that has come about post-election. And uh, I think it's something I wouldn't have been as compelled to do had it not been for the composition of the politics in Washington right now. you hadn't been involved in that capacity before? No, I had not. Oh, really? Okay. 
So, uh, wait, does this dog and pony go to maybe some, uh, some like proto scientists, like in uh, K through twelve? Like, are you? Oh yeah, I'm. I'm. I think the youth and and children are extremely important. They're going to be an increasingly important part of the solution to climate change and other environmental um, issues moving forward. Uh, So definitely, I am interested in speaking to different schools, all grades, um, colleges, rallies, and so forth. Okay, I know. When I first met Shahir, he had. He's not putting it on now. He had this amazing fedora, so I I can just see that could be all kinds of a draw when (laughs) you're uh, bringing them on board with. Science and uh, and would you be politicizing it a little bit, saying, well, you know, this is why you junior seniors need to pay close attention as too soon to be soon to be registered voters. That there, there is this public health, the science, and electoral piece that all come together for you guys. I mean, I don't think there's any harm in um, alerting the youth to the fact that science, unfortunately, is not taken at face value. There are um, political aspects that. Oftentimes, you know, science gets put to the side, but, you know, to really uh, make issues heard, you do have to come out of your shell a little bit and get on the podium sometimes. Well, you've got a lot of company. When we've had distinguished lectures here given. Mario Molina, who co-received uh, the Chemistry Nobel Prize 1995 with Sherwin Rowland, and he was here about two years ago. And when we break down the content of his delivery, one third of it was a politicization of where we take this with, with climate change. So it's it's and we'll we'll bring him up in a little bit. So uh, well, I want to play a track from the NBC interview of Joe Kernan talking to Scott Pruitt, and I want you to. We're all going to listen to this, and then I would like for you to comment on that after we give it a listen. CO2 is the primary control knob for climate. Do you believe that? No, I, no, I think that, that measuring with precision uh, human activity on the climate is something very challenging to do, and there's tre- tremendous disagreement about the, the degree of impact. Uh, so, so no, I would not agree uh, that it's a primary contributor uh, to, the, to the global warming that we see. Okay. All right. But we don't know that yet. As far as we, we need to, we need to continue the debate and to continue the review and the analysis. That was Scott Pruitt, and he was being interviewed last week. And sort of that, I guess that was the shot over the bow is like sort of a challenge whether science is going to be uh, infantilized, uh, trivialized, uh, unnormalized. What was your reaction when you heard that last week? Yeah, I mean, I think that as former Attorney General uh, Oklahoma. Uh, who had notoriously accepted campaign contributions from energy companies. I don't think his statement is particularly surprising. Coming, however, from now administrator for the Environmental Protection Agency, I mean, I think a statement like that is completely alarming, to be honest. I think that you can't really get much more of a scientific consensus than 97% of climate scientists, um, which obviously uh, support the idea that uh, humans are in fact contributing uh, mostly to the climate change that we're experiencing. So to have uh, an EPA administrator uh, voice his opinion and have an opinion really that is not supported by mainstream science, uh, particularly when you're heading a scientific agency, I mean, I think that's something that's quite cause for concern. So did, like... Uh, just getting down to like a visceral this public health. Your pu- was your public health compromise? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, you know, you feel the knot at the pit of your stomach. Um, I I think that my initial reaction to that was 
just hopelessness. I mean, you know, that, that is, uh, that's not what we need right now moving forward. If we're going to handle climate change, the last thing we need is an EPA administrator who is not even believing that humans are a cause of it. So yeah, it made me feel really, uh, not good for a period of time, but you know, that's when you get back out to the streets and you start working. Well, and speaking of working though, the EPA phone line was, was busy last week. And then I tried to give it a call myself and it's, the mail is maxed out. It's not taking any other messages. There was a, I guess a, a, a another line that was set up, but it was not taking. So, from uh, oh yeah, an impromptu calling center was created, but I didn't get referred to that. So uh, that's that's a problem. Well, for this pivotal and sweeping claim, you told us about your reaction. What do you th- see could be happening with the up to twenty twenty five percent reduction of the EPA budget? We'll just talk generally, and then I can break it down in a few of the places that would affect public health and and, and environmental justice. Sure. Well, if Scott Pruitt's past has any indication, uh, when he was a secretary, um, or rather attorney general uh, of Oklahoma, uh, he cut the environmental enforcement division uh, at his state. So if that's any indication, I think one thing that we can potentially expect is a large reduction, if not a total cut, of uh, funding for the enforcement component of the Environmental Protection Agency. And it turns out that that's an extremely important component because, well, when people aren't, uh, when regulations aren't enforced, industry usually doesn't feel they need to abide by them. So uh, that's probably something you could expect. For those of you who've just tuned in on Ask a Leader you're listening to, my guest is Dr. Shahir Mazri, who's researched deals with air pollution exposure assessment, epidemiology, and he's weighing in now with his concerns about the latest coming out of the Environmental Protection Agency under the helm of the newly appointed director, Scott Pruitt, former Attorney General of Oklahoma. So the matter of a national agency like EPA to enforce against uh, companies violating various regulations in multiple states uh, and like the nation's largest retailer, Walmart, or the refineries that we're talking about, uh, I've talked with several guests over the last month and a half, So, uh, and we we got the the memo from the resignation of Mustafa Ali. So how uh, do you see the environmental justice it intersects with the public health what do you see yourself doing based on what is being telegraphed from the epa direction leadership um what i see myself doing is is uh, a bit of what i think a lot of people have been doing and what i think is so important which is uh really engaging at a local level with your politicians to um ask them you know to prioritize climate change um, and, uh, you know, for me also, I'm going to move forward with, uh, you know, writing and blogging and trying to really advocate okay. for issues of climate change. Uh, I think it's really important for people to start talking about it. Climate change has sort of become this somewhat taboo, awkward topic to bring up at the dinner table. And that really has to change if we're going to think seriously about climate policy and moving forward um, to mitigate climate change. Well, that you mentioned that taboo. That's and so that's what's really a sad thing is the the politicization of science has undermined what policies can be implemented, what the leadership is doing. So that is back to what you want to do with promoting science is 
a, a, a vocation for up-and-coming students and putting before voters where policy matters with them. So how do you, how do you grapple with the, the kind of politicization of science? What can you say to people to say it's, it's apolitical, folks? How do you get it back to the apolitical domain? Uh, that's a great question, and uh, there's been entire books dedicated to answering this question. And, um, you know, it's not so easy. I think that some of the, you know, we need to get this issue away from being associated as, um, you know, characterized as an environmental issue, because there's some people that hear the word environmental or environmentalist and get turned off immediately. So it's really important for people, and I think this is also where the educational piece comes in, for people to recognize that this isn't an environmental issue. Uh, this is a public health issue. That's, that's what I'm wondering, if that refrain might be the a, a potent framing of what's at stake here. I think so. And I think another key thing, a key element that's going to move this issue forward is really the inevitable impacts that are going to be realized by climate as the climate changes. So, I mean, we've seen, you know, Hurricane Katrina um, and and Sandy and, you know, recently Matthews. These events, these weather events are going to only be increasing in, in frequency or well, at least in magnitude. Yeah. Right. I mean, th- these in- inevitable outcomes, which are going to be coming uh, more and more often, are going to leave people with, I think, nowhere else to think other than, you know, climate change is something important and serious that we need to consider. Having said that, I don't think we should leave it to those events to turn, you know, the public sentiment in that direction. But it's certainly not an easy task to grapple with. But uh, yeah, again, I think framing it as not an environmental issue, but a public health issue uh, and an issue, really a humanitarian issue, is something that's going to be increasingly important. Well, Shahir, I'm just wondering if when you're talking and others that are stumping on this uh, now we are politicized scientists uh, march here is whether everybody dispenses a vocabulary list so we say we say public health we say climate change not global warming because the climate change addresses why we had atmospheric rivers why we're having snow uh, blizzards happening to the intensity they are happening why the hurricanes are acting the way they are, becoming more intense, maybe less frequent, but you know more intense. So maybe I don't know if there's the sort of the the monologue for every scientist on the stump is, folks. Part of the takeaway here is vocabulary we ought to be thinking about using uniformly. Yeah, I mean I think so. I mean vocabulary is important. Um, another piece that I sort of left out, which I think is important uh, to most Americans and most people, is the economic impact. So people who don't who don't like the language of public health, don't like the language of environmental conservation, yeah, who get yeah. turned off by those things. Um, you know, you don't have to be an altruist to, you know, get behind climate action. I mean, climate action is an entirely economic issue. Um, I mean, we don't need to rattle through the list of uh, the amount of funding in, that has gone into uh, repairing cities that have been damaged by hurricanes. Um, and, you know, Miami is underwater now for parts of the day during super high tides. Uh, and I think California is in the midst of a $50 million project uh, aimed at reinforcing structures along the coast. So it's really an economic uh, issue. And p- people who don't like the language of these other, you know, public health environmentalism need to uh, can probably relate to the fact that we don't want our tax dollars going increasingly to um, really something that could have been prevented. Right, right. 
So a host of scientists have additionally been weighing in. I'm going to name them everybody. Well, I'm going to name a few. Nobel laureate Mario Molina that I mentioned, Princeton Princeton University, Michael Oppenheimer, Carnegie Institution's Ken Caldera, National Center for Atmospheric Research, Kevin Trenberth, Trenberth, yeah, the American Meteorological Society, among others, as if to make their point that there's no equivalent roster of experts supporting Pruitt's claims. Oh, isn't that isn't that an item? Yeah, I mean, it's refreshing. There's no symmetry in this. No, there's really not. I mean, and, and again, when you look at the, the weight of the scientific community looking, uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, percentage, you get the 97% versus 3%. Right. Um, it's nice and refreshing to hear that those top scientists are speaking out in support of what we ought to do. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Scott Pruitt is a big baseball fan. So in Scott Pruitt's language, uh, you know, his own views are really coming out of left field. Uh, this isn't at all in line with mainstream science. So if we're going to deviate from mainstream science, uh, I mean, we are, we're looking at an, an entire different reality because the uh, economy and, and, and everything that we really take advantage of and have benefited from is a result of, you know, efforts and breakthroughs made through science. So to suddenly deviate from that, especially as a head of an environmental protection agency, I think is very irresponsible. So here is where we wrap up with where we are at this point and what you'd like to see listeners follow up on. What would you like to see happening in the national leadership? What can the opposition shadow, uh, there's no shadow cabinet in our country, but the, the opposition parties, how, what do you want to see them doing? And then I'll ask about other domains as well. Sure. At a national level, I mean, I think one thing that economists have been advocating for for quite some time is um, some sort of carbon tax. Uh, others have called it a carbon fee and dividend. I, I think that uh, this is really important. There's great blueprints for how you roll this out. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we're going to need to put a price on pollution if we're going to tackle this matter. And there's ways of doing this in a revenue-neutral way where you uh, tax you know, you tax emissions, um, you tax fossil fuel extraction at the source, at the port, and then you give that money back to uh, the public. So there's ways of doing this that I think could, are very, uh, look very promising, and I think we ought to start pushing that and talking about it uh, in, in, the, in a real sense. Uh, there's another thing I, I should mention, which is something called the Conservative Case for Carbon Dividends, which, which has been authored by some very prominent Republicans, in fact, and this is really a breakthrough in, in a political sense because typically we haven't seen Republicans come out and support something uh, related to climate change and carbon taxation. So this conservative case for carbon dividends is, is uh, quite important and something that hopefully we can support and try to move through uh, Washington. Now, but this raised, I'm concerned about the environmental justice aspect of this with some of the, the like the cap and trading. Is that what the carbon dividends coming from or is it a different program entirely? It's a different program. Okay. Um, yeah. Environmental justice is offended by the, the the cap and trade means you can dump all you want your, with your refinery in Wilmington, but somewhere else it's going to be a lot cleaned up. So but so how does the dividend work? So the dividend is uh, basically what you would do is um, you're not setting you're not saying, uh, telling one industry, hey, you can trade with that industry and, uh, you know, let them pollute. And um, there, there's none of that taking place. What this is, is a tax on carbon 
emissions, so carbon dioxide emissions, at the source. So is it at, it's at the mine, at the port of entry, or at the wellhead. And what this does is this sends a price signal to the consumer um, to make, uh, you know, really things, uh, make prices at the store uh, reflect the... Externalities of it all. Exactly, the okay. externalities. Okay. So then what, what would you like to see at the grassroots happening? Uh, sure. That I, I think that what needs to happen at the grassroots level and what is, again, starting to happen now, but to be more specific, you know, when people talk to their uh, local congressmen and women, there's a couple actions that they can ask of, of these politicians. And one is supporting the conservative case for carbon dividends is important, or if not, they can write their own blueprint for some sort of carbon tax. But uh, another very easy thing that politicians should do, and I think their constituents should pressure them to do, is to join the House Climate Solutions Caucus. So this is a bipartisan caucus uh, made up of equal parts Democrats and Republicans. I think now there's somewhere around 26 members. They come in as a pair. One party goes in with their can their congressperson and matched with the other parties. We do not have 45th represented in there yet. That's exactly right. Yeah, they come in as a pair, and we don't have 45th represented yet. Uh, recently, Ed Royce joined, uh, which is actually quite ah. So they're okay. yeah. So well I, done. Yeah. Well done. I, I, I think it's climate lobby. <laughs> right. I mean, uh, you know, I think that people's actions at the grassroots level are really starting to show up. And, you know, we're turning the tide and I think we need to continue to do that. Well, you were talking about your own on your individual level aspect about blogging. You have a toxic talks dot com. And that that's not in the air column where you're researching. You're dealing with some water or the water quality, water column kinds of things. So is this at ToxicTalks.com where you're going to be blogging your ongoing activities? and Yeah, work? ToxicTalks.com, um, also ToxicTalksBlog.com. Um, those, are, uh, those will both get you to my blog site where I do blog on environmental issues, climate change. I try to spell it out plain and simple. There's also, you mentioned things that people could do at, uh, themselves. There's a great organization out there called the Citizens Climate Lobby, which you alluded to. Yeah, so they've been on a bunch of times, and they'll keep, oh, they'll great. keep coming back. They've got an open invitation, as do you. Excellent, yeah. So join that group, too. They're doing great things. So I guess one of my last questions is, what do you think is happening to science literacy when we get knowledge and policy reversals the way we're getting from the, the leadership on the national level? It doesn't do us any good. Um, it's sad to see people have mistrust in science um, because you know scientists work very hard and uh, do their do I think quite a, a great job of trying to get to the truth of our of our world, and um, we do it in a very methodologically objective way. And you know when politicians come along and they sort of just neglect important scientific studies, it does a tremendous disservice to uh, the scientific community, but also the public. And I think where this leaves us is in a state of really needing to uh, educate ourselves and look for sources of information that are objective and try to stay off of political websites and politicized uh, um, sources if we're going to really truly become informed about these issues. Well, Dr. Shahir Mazuri, he is his work focuses on exposure assessment relating to particulate matter and other ambient air pollutants. UCLA Harvard trained on his way to making his mark both in science and in civic responsibility. Thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader this morning. Thanks so much. Well, we are going to be right back with Jane Page, who has some interesting and lively things happening this week. 
Stay tuned. We'll be right back. That's Weather Report, and that track, of course, is Birdland. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. Jane Page, director at UCI's Claire Trevor School of the Arts, returns back to our airwaves. I'm so always glad to have her. She's recently returned from Denver's 2017 Colorado New Play Summit, including a play she's working on, Human Error, over there, and it's it's happening, it's happening a couple different places. Now, we return today to the projects this week here at UCI. It's one is Quebrando el Silencio, Breaking the Silence, Latinx Voices, and the Scientist Theater Collaboration, the Science Fair, supported by Illuminations, the Chancellor's Arts and Cultural Initiative. So welcome back to Ask a Leader, Jane, with all of this up your sleeve. Good morning. Good morning. So let's have you start by telling us what your new original work by the members of the Brown Bag Theater are up to, and first what it is, and then we'll find out where and when and who and how and how how it's on our required attendance list. Uh, thank you for the opportunity, first of all, to share this information. Brown Bag Theater Company is a part of the UCI drama department, and it is a, a group of people who are dedicated to uh, the voice and literature and the theater making uh, for Latino uh, and s- Latino theater in our midst. What, this project is a really important project because it's original work by the members themselves. It's looking at uh, their struggles in terms of identity and activism and relationships with family uh, and what it means to be a Latina student in higher education. It's a really unique, it's about an hour long, I believe. Um, I'm a supporter of Brown Bag and an advocate for Brown Bag and really appreciate what they bring to our conversation across the campus as well as in the drama department. The performances this week will be Wednesday the 15th, that's tomorrow. That's tomorrow if you're listening live. At 9 o'clock in the Ring Room at the Cross Cultural Center on campus. 9 p.m. And it's absolutely free. If you can't make that one, there's a there's a performance Sunday, March 19th at 1 o'clock in the Nixon Theater, which is on the, the UCI Arts Campus. It's we'll up above. So you have two opportunities to see this really remarkable new work, and I hope everyone makes, a, makes an effort to get there. So this creative process and a realization of the power of one's creative product. Right, and I What's think happening there? theater certainly is a place that gives voice to people and gives voice to underrepresented uh, people. It, but it's also very thrilling for them and for all of us to have an opportunity to really hear first-person narratives. Really? How many are involved? I'm not sure. Oh, okay, so it could change. I'm not sure. Oh. I've been an advocate. I've been doing a bit of work with uh, some of the actors, but I'm very excited about this idea of original work. Very. So any, this, this is dealing with their struggles and their activism and their relationships with their family. Have you uh, learned anything about your students? From well, this? it's interesting for me to understand how one uh, approaches conversations around ethnicity, uh, how, how to frame those, those conversations in ways that are open and inclusive. And that's, I think, a really huge lesson for, for everyone. Okay. For those of you who are joining us this portion of Ask a Leader, my guest is Jane Page. 
She is UCI director at the Claire Trevor School of the Arts, returning once again to this show with What's on Deck this week. She's talking about Quebrando el Silencio, Breaking the Silence, Latin X. You know what? It could have been Latin XY voices <laughs> or XX voices, that's what I should say, because it's mainly it's mainly women speaking. Not, it's men and women. So XXXY. We're, so what does the X represent in there? It's a no, it's a it's a artistic. Yes. Prerogative there. So that is one. Now there is another collaboration with the Illuminations later. Tell us about the second one. Well, the second one is also happening tomorrow at 1245 in the afternoon at the Little Theater, which is in the Humanities Hall on campus. It is a really unique collaboration with major scientists on campus and theater directors. It's part of a class that I teach called Works in Progress, and it's about how one might approach all kinds of material to make theater. And the sort of developmental form of theater making is becoming more and more a part of the national and international landscape. So it's a class that explores things like uh, ritual as theater making. It explores, we did a project at the beginning of the quarter on current events and giving voice to current events. This collaboration started actually in a conversation a couple of years ago with Michael Denon. And uh, we tried a very, very, very short process two years ago, and we came back, and we have seven scientists and wow, seven, seven of them, and seven directors, one of which is a grad director, the rest are undergrad directors, who are, and it's a very lighthearted, spirited, fun. Uh, it'll be about 45 minutes tomorrow at 12:45 in the little theater, and everyone is welcome. So folks, we all of us take a lunch break. So I think this is something we can all work in. If Absolutely. we just have a little know-how here. So I'm just wondering if this is an opportunity. We, we just asked a scientist with how, how willing he is to politicize his research in terms of getting people to shore up the uh, erosion of science literacy on the national level. Are any of these products in at the Little Theater tomorrow, are they going to be some kinds of science literacy on the line calls to action in there? Well, I think it's really, every director has taken a very different approach. Just through a little bit of that? Well, some of them have taken more of a focus on what has taken these individuals from when they were children to become scientists and what kind of science and assumptions we make about science. Others have tried to unpack the actual science that the professors and research labs are focusing on and give it a theatrical uh, voice so that those of us who are not scientists have a better understanding. And also, uh, it's it's just great fun, which I think in the, at this point in the quarter is a welcome relief. Yeah. Well, and I think on a broader basis, we all could use a, a little tonic for what's going on around us. I think that's true, and I also think that the notion of us looking at what we have in common, scientists and uh, and creative artists, in terms of looking at puzzles and yeah. and uh, trying things and experimenting and having an idea and following that idea, and I think that way artists and scientists are very similar. So, uh, who's learning more, the the thespians or the scientists, <laughs> about the other person's vocation? 
Well, that's hard for me to speak to because I'm I'm uh, only hearing about the scientists from the students' uh, visits to their labs. Uh, I I hope that the scientists have uh, have a great time and also understand what a great gift they've given these young theater artists. Okay. Yeah. We'll ask afterward again what what's happening there, and uh, we'll put it up. This is the the science collaboration uh, that's tomorrow. If you're listening to this show live, folks, at twelve forty five. PM. That's your lunch, folks. We've we've already booked you, and so the little theater's got a nice capacity of about what two hundred fifty or 250. so. So yeah. it's got the features of being both. There's there's enough sort of feedback loop for performers, and it's intimate for the theater goer. So there's there's and and they can drag in their brown bag. Absolutely. So there's two brown bags happening this week. <laughs> exactly. Okay, brown bag squared. So folks can all go to the Claire Trevor School of the Arts webpage for all the productions that are coming up. And Jane Page is preening the future fine directors here, both her undergraduate and her graduate students. So uh, any play that you see that is presented by a student under Jane Page's tutelage has always been a marvel to see. So those are, they'll be coming up in the spring. There'll be a few productions, but the Claire Trevor School of the Arts page that's where to go absolutely well, do they all but we don't know necessarily if that they're your students though until we look at the program so we just got we got to call a box office and find <laughs> out there well jane once again i really appreciate your being on the show today to talk about what's going on this week that's wednesday twelve forty-five p.m then it's on the wednesday, wednesday at nine, 9 p.m at the Ring Room and Sunday, March 19, 1 p.m. at the Nixon Theater. Everything is free, yes. There is one other thing that's happening this week. Annie Louie's company, Counterbalance, is doing a uh, another take and another oh, version yeah. about longitude. And that information is on the website. I'm, but it's not to be missed. Not to be missed. Okay. Well, and Clown Aliens has one more weekend. Okay. Which, if you don't know what Clown Aliens definitely check it out okay all right that's that's there's a lot for everybody to take up well jane thanks once again for bringing these productions to our attention and for coming back to the show always welcoming you t when there's a next fresh production that you want to share with us thank you so much for thank being you on Ask Leader. we'll see you at the theater all right we will i'm going to uh now give a bucket a bucket load of announcements first the orange county Museum of the Art is presenting this week. It's a part of Jane's school, actually, collaboration. Fields, Flags, and Forms. It's on March 17th, if you're listening live. That's this Friday. It's at 6 p.m. It's free Friday, so you know what that means. And out of your pocketbook, nothing. It's a what they call a kaleidoscope array of improvisations on and with an analog synthesizers present in response to pop art design. Uh, organized by faculty members and internationally known artist Lucas Ligeti with Don Preston and Phil Mantioni in collaboration with UCI's Integrated Composition Improvisation Technology Program. And then Miso Hungry Food Truck is also on site. But go to OCMA.org and you are going to find out all that's happening there. But stick around with the OCMA. They also have another item later on this month, Visionary lecture series it's a spring session that's going to be mondays march 27 to may 1st 
at 1 p.m. and the final session will be the 20 it's the final session of the 2016-2017 Visionaries Lecture Series considering the transition from new dada to conceptual art and this session will also consider how women's liberation influenced art and fashion in the age of disco and how photographers documented 70s everyday life and that fits in with their exhibit currently the pop art it's a it's a very fresh one then we go on to item number three here. This Saturday on March 18th, the Great American Write-In presented by the vaunted Women for Orange County. That's going to be 9.30 to 1.30 at the Del High Center at 505 East Central Avenue, Santa Ana. I'll post the website for Women For. They'll be smashing their record for number of organizations represented with messages that participants can send to agencies all the way from the local to the international domain. So what's a beautiful thing about this is you meet grassroots participants you've never met before, and they are on top of what is happening with respect to policy and their grassroots activities. And they give you, you have a chance to sit down with other folks, write a letter to that representative of that agency and tell them what your position is, what you want them to do. That's the Great American Write-In this Saturday. Next is this Sunday, if you're listening again to live, it's Sunday, March 19th. The United Farm Workers are meeting in Orange at 140 South Marks Way. Doors open at 5, dinners at 6, and the program is at 7 p.m. And it will feature United Farm Worker President Arturo Rodriguez to talk about the latest farm worker developments, which you know are many and they're complex, these concerns, and uh, since the last fall's election. I hope to have the opportunity to interview Mr. Rodriguez in advance of that dinner and play that for you next week. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, we're going to hear from Scott Kitcher. He's the CEO of the Sustain OC, and he'll be talking about some of the innovations that he is incubating in terms of sustainability in businesses in Orange County. It's really, it's quite a lively incubation prospect there, and I'm going to have a really good time opening that up with him. Talk with you next week, everyone. Thank you for listening.